0: Hi everyone, I'm Les, and I'm Ashley, and you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics.
1: Hi everyone, we're here with Dr. Crawford of Fairfield University, who is a part of the Sociology, Anthropology, International Studies Department. Welcome Dr. Crawford, how are you doing today?
2: Uh, very well, fantastic, good to see you, or hear you anyway. <laughs>
1: well thank you for joining us today um so before we get started a lot of your work actually has to do with um morocco and today we're actually be discuss discussing drug dealing in uh suburban u.s so how has you got from moroccan households to suburban u.s
2: well it uh it does seem like a leap uh on a practical level uh, you know, as my kids got a bit older, it became difficult to spend the amount of time I needed to spend in Morocco to kind of keep up on things uh, in Morocco. So I was looking around for something different to do. And it struck me that, uh, you know, some of the things I observed in Moroccan villages. So if you work in a – I'm not explaining this very coherently – but if you work in a small village – Economics work very differently than they do when you're in the anonymous space of a market. So if you're down at the market, you know, if you're if you're shopping in Marrakesh or something, it's it's just like here. But if you're if you're buying and selling things in a village, you're buying and selling with people you're intimately related to, oftentimes in multiple different ways. So that and that changes the economics. So then I was reading uh, Freakonomics, and Freakonomics claimed that drug dealers work like uh, markets. They work like Walmart, or they work like you know any other market you might go into. Um, and in my own personal experience in high school, that's not how drug dealing worked at all, at least in the suburbs. Now I understand it does work that way, or it works that way in you know urban cities or urban areas where you have anonymous drug dealing. But when you take away the anonymity all of a sudden, everything looks much more like a Moroccan village than it looks like a, a Walmart or a McDonald's.
1: So uh, something I forgot to mention in the beginning. So we were actually today discussing Dr. Crawford's uh, paper that just was released, uh, Inconvenient Friendship, How Successful Cocaine Dealers Manage Social Obligations. And I, I got to say, what I liked about this is I, I do have my own business on the side. I don't have a degree in business. So I've, I've had to read a lot of books like, you know, um, Donald, Donald Miller's How to Build a Story Brand, Influence, uh, The e Um And what I liked about this was we don't tend to think of drug dealing as a business, but I mean, really it is. I mean, you're buying and selling and it reminded me a lot of um what they teach us about you know networking you know i go through my wedding networks uh these these dealers are having to make friendships um gift giving um but uh can you can you go on and uh maybe summarize for our listeners um how do i word this
2: Every wise uh, thing I've ever thought in my head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, two, in, in like 30 seconds or less, because that's really all the wisdom I have in my head. <laughs> the inconvenient friendship piece that we're discussing today is the third piece that I've written on this drug dealing research I did. Um, I had a thing called suburban drug dealing in research in economic anthropology that came out in 2016. I had a, a book called uh, "Dealing with Privilege" that came out in 2019, and then in the in response to a call for papers on convenience, I wrote this thing about inconvenient friendship, uh, and it came out in 20 you know, recently in 2021. So, um, the the basic idea goes at, well; it goes all the way back to Aristotle, I suppose, but it recently, the more recent history. It goes back to Marcel Mauss and his insights that you get out of The Gift and the subsequent research that's gone into Mauss's The Gift. And the idea at its core is pretty simple, that conventional economics and certainly neoliberal economics as part of conventional economics presumes atomized Uh, atomized actors. That is, it presumes an agent that is entirely self-interested and is only interested in the transaction in front of them. So, you know, I go to buy gasoline and, you know, I'm going to interact with the person behind the counter, give them my credit card, pay and leave. But there's no relationship there. Now, all of conventional economics is predicated on that sort of model. But in fact, the vast majority of what I would call more broadly economic interactions aren't like that at all. They're largely with people you do know. And when you know people, that changes the way you exchange with them. And the most extreme example of that, you know, I suppose would be my children who take everything from my refrigerator and pay nothing for it. They consistently you know, we in, inside my household, things are consistently exchanged, but not even remotely like the larger market. So I guess my larger goal, one I share with a whole bunch of people and uh, in, in following Marcel Moss, is to explode this idea that what's called economics is all there is to economics. In fact, what economists study interactions within by anonymous actors in markets is a very small slice of what humans really do in terms of all of their exchange. So that's the kind of platform on which this drug dealing book is based. And the, the drug dealing was just kind of a way to get at that, a way to show that something that the authors of Freakonomics and many others consider the epitome of that kind of universal model of self-interested exchange. Drugs would seem to, you know, I mean, you think of a crack dealer, you, you don't think of that person as being very interested in their customers. They are just there to make money. Um, but when you look closely at it, you see that, in fact, most was right 100 years ago and interactions amongst humans are significantly more complicated.
1: Can you um can you go ahead and kind of summarize I mean in your paper you go through the three types of friendships denying altruism denying economic interest and taking the business out of context of friendship can you go ahead and explain that um explain the three examples to to the listeners
2: Yeah so uh in this article the the first example of so to back up one step, essentially what I went, what I did is I went around and I interviewed successful drug dealers. And what I mean by successful is these are people who never became drug addicts. They never went to rehab. They didn't have their families destroyed. Um, and, and I just want to make clear that I I am not in any way valorizing these the cocaine dealing. And these all these dealers I deal with in this article were cocaine dealers. And so I'm not saying cocaine's not a problem. I'm not saying dealing cocaine's a good thing. That's not what the article's about. What it's about is the way cocaine dealers understand their dealing. And what's interesting to me about that is that, in fact, they misunderstand it pretty profoundly and in revealing ways. Um, so the first, the first uh, person, the first interview, uh, is a guy I call Wayne, and Wayne is an ardent Republican. He deeply believes that all human beings are self-interested all the time. And in our interview, he argues that dealing cocaine is just like any other business. And he is, at the time I'm interviewing him, when he's 60 or 63 or something, he's got a legitimate business. He hasn't seen cocaine in 30 years. And he's he's just saying that his cocaine business was just like his contemporary business and that it is founded on self-interested people getting what they want. Um... However, as his interview goes along, some contradictions in that become clear. It becomes clear, for instance, that, uh, that Wayne gives away huge amounts of cocaine. He's very generous with his drugs. And I bring this up in the interview, and he tries to not deny that he gave it away. He admits that he gave it away. In fact, he brags about giving it away, but he claims that it's, it's, it's only for good business. He's just trying to make new customers. And, um, in the interview, the longer versions in the book and in the interview, I flatly just don't believe him. I mean, I just don't believe that he's actually calculating how much, how much, how many drugs he's giving away and expecting that the return on those is going to be higher. In fact, he's just being generous, but his model of what one does as a human being, and certainly what one does as a human being in business doesn't allow him to admit that. So he can't quite... Wrap its mind around that. The next person I interview, is, uh, I call Arthur, and Arthur was also a cocaine dealer, but only during the time he was in college, only the four years when he was at um, at university. And Arthur Arthur starts off by saying, "Oh, I was never a drug dealer." And I say, "Well, okay, that's fine, but you agreed to do this uh, interview because you said that you bought and sold lots of cocaine." He's like, "Well, yeah, I did. I just wasn't a drug dealer." So. You know, I've got Arthur has this idea that because he wasn't trying to make money, he's not actually a drug dealer. But there again, his whole business is based upon the amount uh, the, the price of the drugs that he's selling is based on the proximity of the, 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 the amount of the, how do I put this, the closeness of the ties with the customer. In other words, he has kind of two best friends. And he never makes any money off of them. And then as people are further away, the price goes up. As they are socially further away, the price goes up. So it's very clear to me in the interview that he's putting a price essentially on friendship. That there's a different model for people who are your best friends than there is for strangers. But he too doesn't realize that until we're in the interview. Um, The third person I feature in this particular article I call Woody. Uh, Woody is from Colorado and Woody had a system where again, he only sold drugs, he sold cocaine and he only sold to people he considered to be friends, but Woody did it only while he was at work and he was a bartender and he didn't, he didn't address it directly. But in the interview, it kind of emerged that the advantage of that was that he didn't have to act like a friend while he was selling the drugs in other words people come in to buy a beer he called it a b excuse me a b and a B, a B and b a a budweiser and a bindle so you know one of his friends would come into the bar they'd give him 105 dollars or whatever and 100 would be for a gram of coke and the five would be for the budweiser and he'd just slip them the slip him the cocaine with the uh with the change and boom he was done so whereas both wayne and arthur would spend huge amounts of time Giving away drugs, you know, receiving drugs given back to them by people they just sold it to, basically just interacting, partying is the verb they use, uh, and that that term has an interesting history. Um, they're partying, and that partying is what makes the social relations close but also what kind of gums up rational economic decision making, right? Because you're you, when you're partying with somebody, you're no longer trying to get the best possible deal like you would if you were working at a McDonald's. So in essence, what Woody managed to do is take the advantages of what I call suburban drug dealing, that is only dealing with friends through networks of people you know, and the advantage of the conventional economy where you're not expected to act like a friend while you're while you're, uh, in that context. So at the bar, he's a bartender. He doesn't have to party or he can't party with the consumer, with the person buying the beer. And he also can't party with the person buying the cocaine. So it's sort of his, uh, solution to the problems raised by Wayne and Arthur or his solution, or I would say his integration of the two perspectives, so that's why I decided to feature those three in combination in this particular article.
1: For this article, how many people did you actually interview?
2: I in terms of the main dealers, I think I did it wasn't very many. I think there were 10, but not all of them made into the made it into the book, and several of them I interviewed over 3 or 4 days. You know, so I did, I had three or four long interviews with them and I spent three or four days kind of following them around and and kind of seeing their environment and understanding the context in which they had dealt. Um, but then I also off tape talked to a lot of their friends, their wives, their their in some cases their children. Um so there's a wider group of people. That, there's only really about eight or nine key interviews that make it into the book, but there's a wider group of people that uh, that play into it. Um, and the reason for that is pretty straightforward. It's hard to find successful drug dealers. Most people who study drug dealing, they study you know, they they find their subjects by looking at, by going to rehab centers, for instance, or going to jails or, you know, finding people who've been caught. And that way, that's why criminology gives you a certain view of how drug dealing works. I was trying to get the view of the people who didn't get caught. And so there's far fewer of them, uh, or at least I could find far fewer of them.
0: Yeah, that does sound like it would... Um be a bit of a problem to find the whole point of them being successful
2: is they haven't gotten
0: caught So
2: <laughs> yeah ex- ex- exactly now i will say that when I, you know i only started i started with a handful of people that i knew from high school basically you know you just went and you know everybody in high school knew who sold what so i started with those people and most <laughs> flatly <laughs> flatly refused to talk to me um but a couple did, and then when other people heard, when I told people what my research was, even people I wouldn't have expected the the title chapter from the book is uh, from dealing with privilege, is a person who's a medical doctor now, and I I was actually talking with his wife about, uh, you know, work context. And she asked me what I was working on. And I told her, she's like, oh, you should really talk to my husband. He used to be a drug dealer. I was like, holy shit. Um, so so in, the, in that sense, the, the, the people who ended up in the book are a kind of interesting mix, you know, East Coast, West Coast, uh, some, you know, one from the Rockies. And I came, I came to some of them through the process of telling them about interviewing the other ones you know so i suppose if i would have waited to publish the book for another 10 years and kept telling people i was working on it i probably would have had 100 people because once mm-hmm. once it and then once the book's been out i get these emails from people going oh that's you know your, your book's fantastic i was a drug dealer and you got this part right and this other bit didn't really work that way you know so in a funny way it's kind of snowballed from from where it started
0: so like you said a moment ago in the article it says that arthur Claims not to be a drug dealer at all, and um just from my personal experience growing up, things like uh the the people you meet around the neighborhood you know you know in your neighborhood they're just people in your neighborhood they're just people there you know people who you can get things from, whether it's uh you know drugs or maybe a new bike or you know stolen bike something <laughs> like that whatever whatever the case may be um but in their opinion they're they're not thieves they're doing something you know a thief may not be a thief they're they're doing what they do so that they can pay their bills so that they can you know get their friend to work or whatever the case may be in that um it seems like with him it's very much a social construct he has his own morality that defines what his world is so for him uh the way his the way partying works definitely does define what a drug dealer is. He's just the guy throwing the party. Is that kind of what you got from that conversation?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's almost like he's doing a public service, um, or at least what it starts off. the The word that's very important to him is reciprocation. You know, the, these two boys, or young men in fresh freshman year offer him a couple lines. It's this very kind of prestigious gift. It's not something, you know, as he says in an interview, it's not like it's a Gatorade, you know, he just sneers it when he says it, you know, like cocaine's hard to get. So how do you reciprocate? How does he show these two guys who gave him cocaine? How does he show them that he appreciates it? Well, really about the only counter gift that works is cocaine. So he has to get cocaine in order to reciprocate the cocaine he's been given, so it all starts with this kind of gifting and counter gifting, and those two guys are the ones who become the friends from whom he won't won't uh won't profit or refuses to profit all the profit is shared amongst the three of them um, so yeah, he doesn't understand himself as a drug dealer; he's just getting drugs for him and his friends, and these other people. Who want a piece of it? it's like, well, okay, and he sort of sells it to him, and you sell it for a little bit more and it, it it The money just starts to pile up, and in a sense, the money becomes a problem. He has to explain to himself, well, why am I making so much money <laughs> if i 'm not actually a drug dealer so I think you're exactly right that it's his self identity that refuses to kind of acknowledge that, and the other thing. That in a in a previous article I talk about a lot more, is that I just think all of the images that you get of drug dealers are like scary brown and black people, right? If you if you watch any cop show, it's either bikers. If they're white, they're bikers. If they're but they're usually brown or black. And you know I think he's sitting there. He's a upper middle class kid from the beaches of Southern California. He's going to college at UC Santa Barbara, and he's like, well, I'm not a biker. And, you know, I'm not a scary gangbanger, therefore I'm not a drug dealer. And so I really like his perspective because it shows how totally the media has convinced all of us that drugs are an inner city problem, that drugs are a problem for brown people um, and black people. And that was a message I really, that's why I called the book Dealing with Privilege because there's a double entendre there. You're, you're, you're using your privilege as a basis for your dealing and that's why you're not getting caught um but you also have to deal with that privilege in terms of your own self identity
0: and it seems like a lot of them just choose not to deal with that privilege either uh it's it's easier to just claim their self identity is uh, something else
2: yeah absolutely the um uh, yeah that's absolutely the case. I mean, people don't like to see themselves as a bad person. And it's also true that the image of cocaine or the way we understand cocaine in this culture changed dramatically between kind of the mid-70s, when some of these people got started selling it, and the and the 90s. And there, there aren't any examples of this in the article that we're talking about today, but the book has some much younger dealers, or at least one much younger dealer who has a completely different understanding of what cocaine is and its dangers. You know, in the seventies, it was considered quite benign by the eighties and especially after Len bias died and the, and the kind of crack exploded on the scene, all of a sudden cocaine became very, uh, very dangerous again.
1: I wanted to go back to make a comment on the gift giving earlier. Um, So we talk a lot about gift giving and what it actually reminded me of was, and I, I think they discuss this in the book Influence, is it actually reminds me of social events that we, we tend to have like Tupperware parties where if I have a Tupperware party, I'm going to be giving away prizes and I'm going to be giving away food so that people feel obliged to purchase from me. So in a way, I feel like it was it was kind of the same idea as I'm going to give away free drugs so that when they want to buy some, they think of me first.
2: Yeah. So I think that's the way Wayne would describe it. Wayne would argue exactly what you're arguing that you, you supply the food because you want to sell the plastic ware and that that's, that's the, the intention is to sell the plastic wear. Um, what I would suggest is that successful Tupperware sellers are not going to give away huge lobster banquets to sell a couple of plastic lunchboxes or you know containers to put leftovers. They're not going to be in business very long, right? So that while Wayne is claiming that what he's doing is precisely what you're saying, I would argue that uh, his actual that as the interview goes on you start to see that he's really not making those calculations he's giving away drugs because that's part of his identity you know he's a he's a he's a rich guy or at least rich in this context because he's the guy with the blow he it makes him kind of a big man it's also quite gendered it's uh, you give away cocaine because it makes you attractive to women um, it's considered prestigious in that era. And he talks a lot about that. And so you just see there's all these non-economic reasons or reasons that are outside the bounds of conventional economics for how he's actually behaving. Um, But to go back to your point about Tupperware, I think the Tupperware corporation understands this very well. The Tupperware corporation knows if people come into your house you're going to feel obliged to offer them snacks, right? I mean, who invites people over and just has them sit in the living room and stares at them? That's just weird, right? And then at the same time, your, your buyers in your house, once you've taken the time to give them snacks and to hang out and to chat, you say, okay, let's, let, let's, let's get to the reason you're here today. Let me show you these fantastic bits of plastic. They show you the plastic. Like even if you don't want any of it, you're going to buy something. You're going to buy something because you feel bad because that's the other side of the gift. There's all these emotional, uh, you're compelled emotionally. And that's what most had his, had his uh, finger on back at the beginning of the 20th century. He said, look, every gift has, has three obligations bound up in it. You're obliged to give, right? So you're obliged to put out the snacks. You're obliged to receive. Okay, those guests are obliged to eat the snacks. I mean, we've all been there when, you know, or at least maybe you, I don't know how young you guys are, but I've been to a number of PTA meetings where somebody will put out cookies and all the women in the room won't want to eat the cookies because somehow cookies are not in their kind of, in the regime, in their diet regime that they're in the middle of. But you feel obligated to accept the gift. You have to eat the damn cookie. And then the third obligation that most talks about is you have to reciprocate. So the third phase is like, okay, I'm going to buy this plastic because that's my that's my reciprocal gift because that's what the person wants me to do. So I just think most had all of this stuff absolutely nailed back in the first part of the 20th century, and the rest of us, and particularly the rest of economics, just needs to catch up.
1: Uh, You made the comment where um, cocaine dealing was seen as being attractive towards women. I'm think I've never thought of it that way. Yeah,
0: I think I see what you mean. It it has to do with um, the idea of um, can you provide, right? And that being a commodity, uh, it's not something that you might traditionally think of as a commodity just because of the culture that we grew up in, but also it is a hard to get resource. And, you know, in the smaller scale cultures, uh, when you think about tribal life, the more desirable mate is the person who can provide food for right. the group, right? So, it you know, it it's not food, but it's a comparable resource in the time.
2: Yeah. Well, and also, if you think in the 70s and 80s, people thought about, again, people, it was a different cultural moment. People thought about cocaine significantly differently than they thought about it. They think about it now. Like, you know, I'm – happy that for my children, they don't think of cocaine as something that ought to be provided by somebody on a date. But in like 1981, if, you know, I mean, being very heterocentric here, but let's say a guy invited you out to dinner, he would he doesn't know if you do drugs or not but he might want to have them in case you do that's the kind of thing you want to be able to provide and that show it shows that you're a desirable person in that, in that moment. Um, I wouldn't, ar- I mean, obviously not in all moments. I hope that my daughter, if somebody tried to provide her cocaine and a date would go, you know, nope, not into it. Um, that's not raising your, <laughs> raising your <laughs> level of desirability with me, but I, it, it seemed pretty clear from the interviews that back in the late seventies and early eighties, that particular cultural moment, it was highly desirable and it did register as something sexy. Um, And interestingly, the one interview, again, this is in the book, it's not in either of the articles, but one interview was with a bisexual man. And it was very interesting for him. It was interesting to me that for him, when he was pursuing relationships with women, he saw it as his job to provide drugs. When he was being pursued, because he was a young man at the time, so so he was very fit, very attractive, and he was an object of pursuit by men who wanted to have sex with men, and he very much considered it their job to provide the drugs. So whoever's doing the pursuing is supposed to have drugs as part of that pursuit, but that's not in this article or the other article, because that's more about that weird cultural moment when cocaine was kind of queen and not the more general long-term arguments about gift giving that i personally am more interested in
1: i feel like this should be a whole nother article that would be very interesting
0: yeah i agree that does sound like it's touching a lot on um the social gender rules of the time
2: absolutely yeah it's and, and 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 for a while there, cocaine very much was considered sexy. I mean, people wore cocaine spoons on chains as as decorations, you know, as symbols of what what, it was a strange time to grow up. I got I got to tell you, it was a really weird cultural moment.
1: Hmm. Uh, Les, do you have any other questions?
0: Uh, we actually covered a lot of what I was we planning did. to ask, but um, that's okay because that means that uh, y- they the listeners don't have to listen to me fumble through questions. <laughs> they can actually get the
2: information that they want. <gasps> Well, how are they? How are they going to listen through my 14 minute per perorations on the functioning of most? <laughs> it might have been better if we chopped them into individual questions and shorter answers. I think I talked too much. No, you did
0: great. No, no you were fantastic. That I, I think they'll be listening raptly. To be honest, it, it's a lot more um, cohesive. I would say.
1: Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, what are you? Uh, what is what we? Now I can't talk. (laughs) What's your next research on Dr. Crawford?
2: Well, we'll have to see, you know, I might pull a couple of the, um, I might pull a couple more of the book chapters. I mean, essentially I wrote the book and then I'm pulling out bits from different chapters and turning them into articles as sort of publicity, you know? So the, I, I could work a little bit more, I think I might work a little bit more on gender and drugs. Um, But the other project that I started, and this is also a kind of social history thing. It it grew out of, in some ways, it grew out of this project. Um, I, for some reason, saved all of my correspondence from junior high school. So from seventh grade, eighth grade and ninth grade, I have every letter I wrote. And well, I don't have every, I don't have any letters I wrote. I'm sorry. I, I have every letter anybody wrote me. And as it turns out, those are 100 percent written by women. And I saved them for 40 years. And then a year and a half ago, I got them out there. Each 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 girl, I guess they're not really women yet that age. Each girl kind of got her own box. And so I got them all out and I transcribed them all. And I wanted to write a kind of social history of Southern California in 1975, 1976, because from the viewpoint of these girls, because uh, I've never seen anything like it in the literature. They're first of all, they're very good writers. I mean, they don't, we didn't have phones yet, right? So everybody had to write with actual paper and pencils and pens. Um, And secondly, the, I don't know how to put this succinctly, but they write in really different, interesting ways about sexuality, about uh, gender, about, I mean, not explicitly, they're not writing, I am about, I'm writing about gender, but the, just the way, we thought about the world in 1975 is so radically different than the way my own children thought about the world when they were in middle school. Um But I just thought that might be kind of interesting. You know, our media was paper and pen. My kids' media was cell phones. And so what changes when you move from passing notes in class to swapping Snapchats or Instagram posts or whatever?
0: So kind of a juxtaposition of the uh, the two uh, in interaction forms that we had at the time then uh
2: yeah the way the way the technology you're using shapes the thing that you're saying and that's an old argument by Marshall McLuhan when he said the medium is the message so when you change the medium from a piece of paper to a Snapchat post or to a phone what changes um what changes in the larger civilization so i'm interested in that but i, I so far, I've only played around with it. I can't quite figure out what the book is in there, so I'm not really sure if I'm gonna do that one next.
0: <laughs> it sounds interesting.
1: It does. I like it. I like the idea.
2: Well, it's you know, it's a bit weird. You know, I'm reading these letters as a 55 year old man, and they're written by 12 year old girls, and some of them are frankly pornographic, and you think you just ask yourself like where did we learn that where did we learn those tropes right we didn't have online pornography like where did we get these ideas <laughs> like, how did how did this happen it's part of that straight, the same weird cultural moment that i was just talking about that there was just like the 60s had fallen apart and kind of collapsed and in the ideals of the 60s with them and the 80s and Reagan and short hair and popped collars and eyesod shirts and all that hadn't begun yet. And so you have this kind of moment between about 1975 and 1982 that to me appears, I mean, I'm not a historian or a social historian, but that moment just appears to be like this weird morass in between two cultural moments. Well, let me throw one more thing out I jotted down that I wanted to talk about. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Um, but so I, I wanted to mention Marcel Moss and I and I already did. But the one other thing I wanted to mention is the ambivalence inherent in what Moss is talking about. Because I think people understand Misunderstand most, and I think these drug dealers, and in particular the the two that we're talking about, Wayne and Arthur, I think both of them get at this ambivalence. you know, on one hand, if you're going to be a drug dealer, you need to make a profit or you don't stay a drug dealer very long. On the other, You need to be a good friend because your only customers are friends. And if you think about, if you treat your friends as customers, they won't be friends very long. Friends don't expect to be treated like customers. They expect to be treated like friends. So, you know, again, you have Wayne who starts off saying, oh, it's just economics and ends up talking a lot about friends and gifting. You have Arthur who's saying, oh, no, it's all about friends and gifting and ends up talking a lot about making profit. And the point there is that it's both and that you can't separate it. And I think there's some real wisdom there that when human beings have a very difficult time exchanging things without any emotional resonance in the exchange, especially in situations that feel intimate, that feel like a household. And I would argue that's why when you go out to dinner, the waiter or the waitress tells you her name, you know, hi, I'm Lori. I'm going to be your server tonight. Why is she doing that? Do we care what her name is? I think, <laughs> I think what's going on there is that she's what she's sort of symbolically welcoming you into her home. And then you're going to, have to take a menu and order from it. Now the person making the food is clearly in the back. You're not going to see him. So you don't have to worry about your obligations to that person. You're only dealing with what did I call her? Lori who's going to bring the food out. So at the end, you pay. And the payment is for the anonymous person in back who made it. But the tip is for the person who talked to you because you have to physically reciprocate. You have to give them something. And I think that speaks to something very deep in all of us that we expect anytime we exchange an object, any time I bring a bottle of wine to a friend's house, we're talking, about go to a friend's house for dinner. I'm gonna bring a bottle of wine, I'm gonna bring a bunch of flowers, I'm gonna bring something, I'm not just gonna show up going, yo, where's the food? That's weird. You know, and so what most is onto and what these drug dealers illuminate is something really fundamental to human interaction and something completely ignored or or too often ignored by mainstream economics.
0: I think it's funny that you actually bring that up. I, I like that idea. Uh but one of the things that I was thinking is that uh obviously cultural norms are different depending on where you are and uh that made me think of the uh the tipping obligation in Europe versus America, for example. So and I should say United States, I uh, but um I, I I could be wrong here, but I believe in uh the UK you don't tip after the, the meal. It's seen as an obligation for them to provide a good experience and they're it's just it's a whole different dynamic it's rather than rather than your obligation to uh pay out extra or not extra but um pay out for the experience you're you're paying for the food and you're providing experience in in return
2: yeah fair fair point i mean i i'm not arguing that everywhere you know tipping follows uh But it's also true that when Americans go to Europe, they find the waiters really rude. (laughs) They're like, oh, they're so rude. (laughs) I'm like, I don't think they're being rude. I mean, I lived in France for a while. I don't think French waiters are being rude. They're just not pretending like you're in their house they're treating you like you're in a business. (laughs) Like, okay, you're here to eat. What do you want? Here's the menu. I'll get it for you. You know, and they don't tend to do that. Hi, I'm Lori. I'm going to be your server today. How's everyone doing? Can I bring anybody any water to get you started? I mean, to me, the whole rhetoric of American style dining is, is about generating that kind of intimacy, or at least maybe not at high end restaurants, but, uh, but there's a certain intimacy that we work. And you're correct. I, at least in my experience, I also lived in London that, that you know, uh, servers in London are not necessarily doing that. So you're absolutely right that it's, it's, enti- it's at once entirely cultural, but where you find it, I think it rests on something deep, you know, because I think, and again, the, the other examples are also cultural. If you went to dinner at a French person's house and you brought wine, they would be insulted. I mean, essentially, if you do that to a French person, you're saying like, oh, I don't trust you to pick out decent wine for this meal, so I'm just going to bring my own. (laughs) You know, That's not how Americans understand it, but that's how French people understand it. So if you're going to a French person's house for dinner, you might bring the host or the hostess some flowers. That's perfectly appropriate. Wine is not appropriate. Gifting is always like that. Gifting is always specific to the cultural context. So you're exactly right.
0: If you look at social interaction going out even back in the the older records, if you like read into the Iliad or things like that, the the gift giving aspect, the social aspect, is very is something very intrinsic to just people in general, regardless of culture. It's just uh, very specific about what cult from one culture to another.
2: No, absolutely true. I mean, it's just like eating is fundamental to being human, but what you eat and how you eat, with whom you eat, and all that is obviously very culturally diverse. I, I would just say. While it's obvious that that's true for eating, it's why should that be true for gifting? I mean, to me, what's interesting is precisely how universal gifts are when there wouldn't there, there's no obvious biological reason for it, you know? whereas there is a biological reason to eat, and then culturally you kind of build on top of that. Um, but gift giving just seems, from an economic perspective, it's just inefficient. You know, there's a famous economics article called The Deadweight Cost of Christmas, where economists who are the, the, the dismal science, after all, they just basically point out that Christmas is just ridiculous. You have a whole bunch of people buying shit that people don't want and giving it to them against their will. And those same people buying stuff you don't want and giving it to you that economically Christmas makes no sense, but either does a dinner party, you know, but, but human beings do them everywhere. They share food, they share stuff. And that sharing, that gifting, is is deeply part of who we are, and we misunderstand all sorts of contemporary behaviors, including drug dealing, because we fail to attend to the, the full breadth of our humanity. We we from our culture are raised to believe that we're essentially selfish beings out in the world to get what we need, except with our family, where that's where we're supposed to be kind and generous. Um, and I think that confuses us it certainly confused the drug dealers that i was interviewing in terms of ex- them explaining their own behavior to themselves
1: <laughs> your uh your comment on uh, christmas reminded me of this conversation we had at work uh so at the time i was like the only female manager and the guys were talking about getting their wife's gifts and i was like just go with their Christmas list. Why are you going to go off the list? You're going to get her something she doesn't want. I feel like it's this conversation I have with my husband because he doesn't, he feels like, but it's not a surprise. I'm like, I don't care. Just get me what I want.
2: Yeah. Well, and you're sharing a bank. I mean, with my wife, we have one bank account, right? So she's buying me something I don't want with my money. <laughs> I'm buying her something she doesn't want with her money. So it's even more perverse. <laughs> Well, you know when I originally stumbled onto this was my very first Christmas I was here at fairfield University, my very first christmas I had no money i'm you know I'm still living like a starving grad student, and so my wife and i we made these little tiny mason jars where we put like a uh, a spicy hot pepper and, and vodka in it and then closed it up and made it kind of like a, uh, a Cajun mar- a Cajun martini mix, right? Hey, what does it cost, like a dollar each? is little tiny mason jars. It was just a symbol, right? Because I didn't know what the gift-giving culture was. So I gave all of the colleagues with whom I worked one of these little, you know, you wrap it in a little ribbon and you have a little card that identifies. There's a great restaurant where I went to school that was a, uh, that was a Cajun restaurant that made these Cajun martinis. Okay, so that's what I was recreating. And one of my colleagues was an economist. And I, you know, I was a workaholic then because I was untenured. So it was like Christmas Eve and I'm still in my office. And the or the day before Christmas Eve or something, and this economist comes bursting into my office, slams his bottle of wine down on the desk in its little You know, it's little, you put it in a bag and it's considered a gift. You know how they have the bags, the gift bags behind the counter to to turn that bottle of wine from a regular bottle of wine into a gift. So she had the wine in the gift bag. She slams it on my desk and she, and she just says, there, I got you your gift and storms back out. It's like she was pissed off that I had given her this present because it obligated her to get me something and she just didn't have time.
0: (laughs) The science of obligation. <laughs>
2: right, it is. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's the science of obligation. We, it, you know, I didn't mean to build that oblig. I mean, I, maybe I did, kind of mean. You know, like I'm the new guy. I want everybody to like me. So, I, I want people to feel like I'm a good guy, but I don't want them to be angry because I because I obligated them. Just be careful what you get, economists, for Christmas. That's all I have. That's I, that's my <laughs> parting words.
1: Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.